Wow, I cannot tell you how good it is to have real people in this room. Ah, it is absolutely, absolutely amazing. And uh, for those of you joining us online at our Skagit campus and homes and gyms and garages and wherever you are, uh, so glad that you're with us. And uh, whether you're here in the building or at a campus or uh, by yourself, I'm glad that you're here today because I think what we're going to look at today applies, I know that what we're going to look at today applies to every single one of us and can impact our lives if we'll be open to that. And uh, so, so just, just pumped to be here. Uh, so I haven't preached with live people for a year so I may go for a long time today because th this is kind of a new experience. Yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, online, they're, they're encouraging me. I'm just doing what they're going to say. Hey, we're in this series, Meals with Jesus, and we've been looking at these different meals that uh, are recorded in Scripture that Jesus had. And the thing about meals are they're so frequent and so familiar that most of them are quite forgettable. I mean, we have meals every day, multiple times every day. And if I would imagine if I were to ask you a random date, uh, February 18th, what did you eat on that day? What were your meals on that day? Most of you would not be able to tell me what you had for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Some, maybe, because either you've got a rain man thing going or you're in a rut that you eat the same things on the same day every month, whatever it might be. Most of you would not be able to tell me what you ate on that because we just, we forget them. And there are meals that are more memorable. In fact, there are some that are unforgettable, but I would guess that most of the meals that we remember it's not so much the menu, the food, what we ate, but the circumstances, the events, the, the, the surrounding, what was happening, and even more so, who was at that meal that made it so memorable? I'll give you an example. Uh, if you've been around Cornwall for any length of time, you know that sometimes we'll bring in special guests that talk about their spiritual journey and how they met Jesus. And sometimes these people are people that we've heard of outside of church arena, and one of the pastoral perks that I have is when we bring these guests in, I get to have dinner with them. So when I sat down with Brian Bosworth, for instance, or Daryl Strawberry, guys that I read about in Sports Illustrated, and I'm having dinner with them, I can't tell you what I ate, but I remember that meal. Because it wasn't about the menu, it was about the event, it was about the circumstance, and it was the who, I can't believe I'm having dinner with Daryl Strawberry. When we brought in Ryan and Sarah Hall, elite Olympic uh, level uh, runners, I had read about them for years in runner's world, and now to sit down and have dinner with them. When we brought in Brian Head Welch from the, the rock group Corn, which I didn't know any of the music, but I'm like, I've never had a dinner like with a legitimate rock star. Like, not metaphorical, oh, you're a rock star, no, like, this is a rock star. It was just like, I can't believe that. So these meals with Jesus, I think, are quite memorable and quite unforgettable, not because of the menu, not because of what they ate, but because of the circumstances, because of the event, because of the who, that some of the people at the table are probably thinking, I can't believe I get to have this meal with Jesus. And as excited as they were, some of these same meals were as unforgettable because of who was there and saying, I can't believe it, on a negative side. Some were ecstatic, some were absolutely frustrated and disgusted. In fact, there's a time when Jesus is recounting what some people have said about him in some meal settings in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus said this, the Son of Man, it's his favorite title, it's a messianic title that comes out of Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, having meals, and you say... Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
they're accusing him, they're slandering him because of the meals that he has apparently with tax collectors and sinners. And just a few chapters later, um, in Luke chapter 15, it gives a firsthand account, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And what I think is, is so um, amazing about this is that these Pharisees and the teachers, the ones who are muttering, the ones who say all this stuff, for them, these are unforgettable experiences as well. They're unbelievable, and in their minds, they're unforgivable. But what Luke does is he puts together his gospel. When he, when he follows up these statements, he doesn't defend Jesus. Jesus doesn't defend himself. In fact, what happens after both of these accounts if you read it in Luke, and one of them we'll look at today, what happens directly after that is that he doesn't defend Jesus. He actually illustrates how this is true, that yes, Jesus is indeed a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yes, he does welcome sinners, and he actually eats with them. That what is meant to be an accusation against him, they turn it around in this judo move and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. You finally are getting it, though they're very upset about it. And one of the things I'll remind you is it's not just these gatherings of consuming calories. In the Near East, in that season of, of history, to have a meal together, to break bread together, was not just consuming food. It was a, a, a symbol of, of acceptance, of, of hospitality, of bringing them in, into, almost like into your family. Uh, Henry Nouwen said this. He said, they put his, Jesus' legitimacy as a teacher in question by criticizing his closeness to sinful people. That they're saying, how can you trust what he says? Don't you see who he associates with? Like, if he does this, you cannot listen to him in this arena. And Jesus is saying quite the opposite. Because of this, you ought to believe this. And it's an amazing thing when you see these meals with Jesus, that Jesus is wide open, indiscriminate with who he will eat with. Very inclusive, even scandalous with who he will have meals with, who he eats with. And you see it over and over again. We've seen it. And, and we also find that Jesus is incredibly comfortable having meals with religious people and non-religious, irreligious people. And he's comfortable even having a meal with religious people and irreligious people at the same table, even though they're all uncomfortable. He's perfectly comfortable with it. And so today we want to look at another one of these meals with Jesus. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. If you want to follow along with your Bible, your tablet, or your phone, whatever, Luke chapter 7. Like I said, I'm so glad that you're here because this meal is incredible and it speaks to every single one of us. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you're going to see a picture of the most beautiful Savior in the world. Even if you don't believe it, you've got, a, you've got a hope that this would be somehow true. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're just going to, again, I think, recognize the amazing Jesus that we follow. All right, so Luke chapter 7, we don't know exactly where this meal took place. If you read it in the context of Luke, Jesus and his disciples had been in Capernaum. That's where a couple weeks ago we talked about he spends most of his ministry up in the northwest uh, corner of the Sea of Galilee in, in the Galilee area. Just preceding this, he and his disciples and a whole bunch of people come into this little town called Nain. And as they come into this town called Nain, there's a funeral procession. And Jesus, Jesus disrupts the entire funeral procession because he brings the dead boy back to life, which will mess up your funeral plans in a good way. And so then it says they go in the surrounding regions. So it's, it's um, 
you know, we could extrapolate out from that that they're in the, the northern Israel, Galilee type area. Where exactly, we don't know. But here's where the meal starts in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, uh, religious leader, this guy's name is Simon. We'll find that out later, but in case we don't get there, let me tell you in advance. His name is Simon. We do know that. It's Simon, one of the Pharisees, Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, which at first glance, if you know about the Pharisees and you know about Jesus and you know their relationship, seems a little odd. Why would this Pharisee be inviting Jesus? We don't know his motives. It could be that he genuinely is like curious, because we have found in Scripture that not all the Pharisees were antagonistic towards Jesus. Nicodemus, for instance, would come to him and ask and, and inquire and eventually become one of his followers. So it's possible that this guy actually wants to hear what Jesus has to say. Highly unlikely, however, if you see at the end of the passage, what we won't get to, the lack of hospitality that he shows to Jesus. Another option is that he wants to back Jesus into a corner. And this is something that the Pharisees did quite frequently where they would ask him some question, they would try to get him up against a wall, try to pin him, try, try to give some, some grounds for which to eliminate him. And that, that could have been the case. Or it could have been that this Pharisee does this in a self-serving way. This Jesus is drawing all kinds of attention. Thousands of people, as we've seen, thousands are following him around. And maybe there's something like, you know what? Everyone seems to love him. If I have him in my home, maybe they'll love me or maybe it'll make me look good. We don't know the reason. All we know is that this Pharisee, Simon, invites Jesus to have a meal with him. In that culture, to say no to a meal invitation would be an absolute insult. And so Jesus goes. He goes on to say this. So he went to the Pharisee's house. I don't think it's just so that he won't insult him. Because there are times when Jesus actually does insult the Pharisees. And he doesn't really care what they think. Because he wants the truth to be known. I think this one, though... It's not about not wanting to insult him. I think what we see here is this heart of Jesus that recognizes this is one more opportunity to extend an invitation to the table in the kingdom of God to this Pharisee and to his friends, to other people as well. So Jesus sees it as a positive thing. Regardless of what his motives are, Jesus is going in with a mission, with an agenda. The, reason he very, the very reason he came to earth to seek and save that which is lost. So he goes. And then there's this really peculiar little detail that Luke throws in. And reclined at the table. Reclined at the table. That, that seems a little odd. Why would, why would Luke say that? Well, part of it, I suppose, is just to give you kind of a cultural context. Now, when I was raised, my dad would say at the dinner table, hey, don't slouch at the table, sit up. I could have said, well, Jesus reclined, but I didn't. So culturally, when they would have a meal, it wasn't like they would pull their chairs up to a table or, or a bar stool up to a, to, a, to a platform there. The table was lower, lower to the ground, and it was surrounded by cushions. The best way I can explain this is if you've ever played a board game on the floor. Okay, let me illustrate this. I'm, I'm not trying to, to be seductive or anything here. But... I don't always preach laying down, but when I do. Okay, if you've ever played a board game on the floor, Monopoly, sorry, shoots and ladders, you know, whatever, Candy Lane. Um, if you play a board game on the floor, for me, this is how I would often play it. Kind of propped up on one elbow, leaves his hand free to move around or collect money or what have you. This was very much the, the way that, the, the position they would use in eating around these lower tables with these cushions to lean against one elbow and then to have the hand free to dip into the hummus or what have you. All right, 
So you say, great, nice little cultural background. But I think there's something much deeper here. I think there's a reason that Luke throw this, throws this in. Because this th- fact that Jesus is reclining at the table shows that Jesus' posture reflects his posture. I know you're struck with my depth. Some of you are saying, Bob, you've been preaching to an empty box too long. <laughs> Hold on a second. His posture reflects his posture. If you look up the word posture in the dictionary, the first definition says, the position in which someone holds their body when standing or sitting. It's a physical position. It's observable. That's what we see. He's reclined. But wait, there's more. The second definition for the noun of posture says this, a particular way of dealing with or considering something, an approach or an attitude. That the physical posture, the physical position, reflects an inner attitude or approach. People who, uh, who talk about communication or negotiation or, or counseling talk about body language. You know this. If, someone, if you're talking with someone and they're standing like this, their position, their posture physically is reflecting their posture inside. They're closed. They're defensive. They're not open. And so Jesus here is reclining physically, but it, I believe it, 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 it gives this picture, this reflection of his approach and his attitude while he's reclining. He's relaxed. He's relational. He's comfortable. He's approachable. He's accessible. He's not defensive. He's not being authoritative. He's there and he's enjoying this. He wants everyone to know about the goodness and grace of God. And he wants to be here with Simon for him to hear it as well. Now, As we will discover and have discovered in other meals, this isn't just Jesus and Simon having a lunch together. Later in the passage, it talks about the other guests. How many and who they were, we can only guess. Simon is a Pharisee. My guess is he has some of his other Pharisee friends with him. He may have other family members with him. He may have prominent members of whatever town this is with him because he may want to look good. If he's trying to corner Jesus, he's probably going to want to have his Pharisee buddies there to back him up. Jesus may probably have his disciples there with him. There may be other friends and families there. So there's a lot of people around. It's not just Jesus and Simon. There's one individual, however, who is not on the invitation list. An unlikely guest, and maybe we shouldn't use that word guest, an unlikely attendee at this lunch who shows up. Verse 37. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Now, there's a lot. Let's just kind of walk. There's a lot we don't know about her. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She's just a woman. We don't even know her name. Her name is never given. There have been people that would speculate. This may have been Mary Magdalene. If so, you could build a case for that. This happens in Magdala. Some say this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. If so, this happens in Bethany. But I don't think that's who it is. We don't know who she is. All we know is that this is a woman who's from this little town, and she had lived a sinful life. Let me point something out. Had lived. Past tense. This is really important. This is a past tense. But some of you are from a small town and you know what past tense can mean. Some of you have been to high school reunions. Some of you know what your family is. There are some things that happened in your past, some things you did in your past, some chapters you had in your past, some before, and people will not let you forget it. 
You are forever branded as that person or that event or what happened in that season. And my guess is that's what happened with her. She will always be known as what she was in that season. What this sinful lifestyle is, we don't know. There are no details, no specifics. You can speculate, you can guess, and most likely, with it being a woman, not a man, it may have had to do with some promiscuity, some sexual indiscretion, possibly. Possibly being a prostitute. That's the easiest one to to guess at. And if that was the case, in that town... They remember how she dressed. The way she dressed was so revealing. It was seductive. It was provocative. The way she wore her makeup, it it sent a message. The way she walked, the people she talked to, the places she was, the time she was there, the guys that she associated with, that's all there. They remember her as the town floozy. This prostitute had lived this sinful life. And maybe that's the case. Most likely that's the case. But let me throw out another option, even if that is the case. That maybe she wasn't just this rebellious, immoral person that her whole life didn't give a rip about the Jewish laws. What if? Speculation. What if she was born and raised in this little town, and as a little girl, she had dreams of someday having a home of her own, a husband and children of her own? And at a very young age, because she was raised in a very difficult home, with a father who was verbally and beyond abusive, neglected her, a lot of fighting, a lot of tension. As she got a little older, the first guy that came along and showed her attention, she just fell for him. And she married him, maybe because she loved him, but maybe it was more just to get away from that situation. And now she's going to pursue this dream of a husband and children of her own in a home that would be different. And then she discovers her husband is no different than her dad. The way he abuses her. And eventually, he divorces her. Because even if he is a Jewish and a law-abiding Jewish man, he could divorce her. Now, if he followed the teaching of the rabbi Shammai, he could only divorce her for moral purposes. But there was another rabbi who had another set of teachings, Hillel. And Hillel was far more loose with his his reasoning um, that would justify divorce. So loose, in fact, a man, according to the teachings of Hillel, could divorce his wife for burning the dinner or oversalting the food. And even more so, there was a rabbi named Akaba. And Akaba said that it was legitimate grounds for divorce if you saw a younger, newer, smaller, prettier, whatever model. If you saw someone that you were more pleased with, you could let this one go. Dallas Willard said this. He says this. In Jewish society of Jesus' day, the consequences of divorce were devastating for the woman. Except for some highly unlikely circumstances, her life was simply ruined. Willard goes on to say this woman who's divorced in Jesus' society had three options. One, if there was a generous relative that would bring her into their household She could do that, but it was usually done very grudgingly because it was a burden. There's one more mouth to feed in a hand-to-mouth society anyway. And very often, she would really be relegated more to almost like a servant role rather than a family member. A second option is that possibly another man might marry her. 
But if he did, she would always be seen as damaged goods and she would live in a really a, a loveless marriage. Willard goes on to say this. The third option, she might make a place in the community as a prostitute. Society simply would not support a divorced woman to any degree or allow her to support herself in a decent fashion. Maybe she was a prostitute. But maybe it wasn't because she didn't give a rip about morals. Maybe her society and her circumstances would give her no other option. Or maybe she was just loose and immoral. Regardless, she comes to this table. All right, let's go back to the story. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So it's, you know, news is out. Jesus is here in the town. He's eating at this Pharisee's house. For everything we don't know about the woman, there's a lot we do know about Jesus. And there's a lot that we know about Jesus and how he interacts and relates with women in that society. We see how Jesus treats women with dignity and respect and honor and value. We see the tenderness he shows to his mother even on his dying day. We see the way he lets Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, sit at his feet to learn. No other Jewish rabbi would do that, but he values her and allows her to be a follower, a listener, a disciple, as it were. We see how Jesus cares for the needs of women who are desperately in need. The Syrophoenician woman that Pastor Kip preached about a few weeks ago, the, the widow in Nain, the, the, the funeral that he interrupted, she was a widow, had lost her son. She has no other relative, and Jesus meets her need. Mary Magdalene, who was riddled with, with demons, the woman with the issue of blood who, who, for 12 years, and he calls her daughter and he heals her. We see how he interacts with women who have a sinful past. The woman at the well who's been married five times, living with a man, and he, she is the first one he reveals himself as the Messiah to, and she is the first missionary he sends in as an evangelist to go tell the, the, the uh, community about him. Of the woman caught in the very act of adultery, when all the accusers leave, he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We know how Jesus would interact with a woman like this. And my guess is, Maybe he had. Maybe their paths had crossed somewhere earlier. And maybe he was the first and maybe the only man who ever treated her like a person, not an object, who saw in her worth and value and gave to her grace and forgiveness. And now she hears that he's back in the area and this nameless woman comes with her wordless worship. And what you see in the passage there is that without uttering a word, she expresses this extravagant outpouring of deep, deep gratitude, love, and worship of Jesus. And the way it happens, it no doubt, unintentionally on her part, draws attention to herself. Verse 38. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, no doubt the most valuable thing she owns. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. It's Jesus reclining, the disciples, Simon, the Pharisees, everyone's there. And she stands behind and she's weeping. 
And then it, 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 it seems to imply that she's no longer standing there. Now she's at his feet because she began to wet his feet with her tears. And all this is happening while they're having dinner. <laughs> and I can imagine the disciples going, okay, this is different. Peter's probably going, there's no crying in baseball. What's she doing? She's crying and weeping. And then what she does next to us is just plain weird. It's flat out funky to us. But to them, it so transcend weird. It's so far beyond funky. Look what happens. Then she wiped them, his feet, with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. I read that, I'm like, weird. They see this. It's not just weird. Because in their culture, in their society, an adult woman would never let her hair down in public. In fact, the only place she would let her hair down to be seen by a man was with her husband, and some would not even do that with their husband. And here's this woman doing this thing, at best case scenario, is inappropriate and immodest. But it's also like intimate, provocative, and immoral. And she lets her hair down, and she's wiping his feet, and she's weeping, and she's pouring this ointment over. And everyone's observing it. Everyone's seeing it, including Simon, because it's happening in his house, at his table, at his meal. When the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, doesn't say this out loud. Now, listen, you know what this is like. You see something happening, you observe something, you're not going to say anything out loud, but oh, the things you're saying, you know what I'm talking about, right? The conversations you're having, the statements you're making, the questions you're asking, it's all happening. No one hears it. No one, you don't say it out loud. And sometimes you do and say, oh, did I say that out loud? But, but it happens up here. And you can, can just imagine all the things that's going through Simon's head, all the questions he's asking, all the statements he's making, all the judgments he's casting. And as you see, because the Bible will give us a little glimpse into one phrase from that, from that uh, conversation he has in his head. And you can just see the disdain and the disgust. What he says to himself is this. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I mean, you can just see this. You can just seething out of him and his judgment of her. You remember, she had lived. But what does he say? He categorized it. He would know um, who is touching him and what kind of a woman. She's in a category. What kind this is that, that she is. And he identifies her. He, he labels her. This is the kind of woman she is. This is who she is. It's not what she's done. It's who she is. And then he gives her this title. She is a sinner. And in his morality, in his self-righteousness, in his religious nature, he judges her. And what's crazy is he not only judges the woman who had a sinful life, he judges Jesus. Can you imagine this? If this man, not rabbi, not teacher, this man, if he really was a prophet, he would surely know. He just compares himself to both of them and looks down on both of them. Social scientists talk about a, a cognitive behavior referred to as a self-serving bias. Uh, and, it, and it's widespread across humanity. 
the way self-serving bias works is that we spin things and situations in a way such that in our perception, we get more credit for good and less responsibility for the bad. You've, if you've ever had children, two children, you've experienced this because they'll be fighting. You come in the room and say, hey, what happened? And the first kid will say, listen, I was sitting here minding my own business, doing my own thing, even sharing this. And then he, out of nowhere, ripped up my picture and starts punching me. Okay, I'm the angel, he's the demon. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Then you hear the other side and it's, okay. So when social scientists were doing surveys around this whole thing of self-serving bias, they found that people who sur were surveyed, nearly 100% of people surveyed ranked themselves as above average drivers. Statistically, that's impossible. You cannot have 100% above average. Even people who are being released from the hospital who have been treated for injuries or sustained in an accident that they themselves caused rank themselves as above average. It's a self-serving bias. It's a self-deception. And Simon the Pharisee has fallen prey to this in his judgment, in his spiritual judgment, as he looks down on this woman of what kind of woman she is. Who she is, she is a sinner. Let me ask you a question. I don't need your answer. There's something you can ponder, something you can discuss later. How much sin must one commit, or how badly must one sin to be considered a sinner? When is it that this becomes our title? And most people say, well, yeah, I'm not really sure what, where the line is, but I can sure spot it in people. Okay. You see, Simon, his righteousness judges and distances. His self-righteousness judges the woman, she's a sinner, judges Jesus, this man, if he were a prophet, and distances, she's not invited. In fact, if you'll look uh, further ahead later, his lack of hospitality, he kind of, while he invites Jesus, he also kind of distances himself, not wanting to be too associated, too friendly with this Jesus. But the converse is so beautiful. Because Jesus' righteousness forgives and welcomes. Because Jesus was more interested in her restoration than his own reputation. He cared more about her than what anyone would think about him. Simon's righteousness was a pseudo-righteousness. It, it, it was a faux righteousness. It was a quasi-righteousness. And that kind of righteousness judges and distances. True righteousness forgives and welcomes. All right. This meal no doubt impacted this woman. And I think it impacted Simon the Pharisee, probably in a negative way. But I believe that this encounter impacted Jesus as well. All right, verse 40. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Funny thing. Jesus, says, Jesus answers him. Simon hasn't asked him a question. You know what he's answering? The questions Simon's been asking in his head. Jesus knows. Could you imagine this? Those times when you're having that go on and then someone's able to hear your thoughts. I mean, like, what if right now, and I'll just talk to you in the room, what if someone that's online, or worse yet, in Skagit? What if someone who's in Skagit right now is thinking evil thoughts, questions like, 
How long is Bob going to preach? How long is he going to go on? How long is this sermon? When will it ever end? And what if as I'm preaching, they're thinking these thoughts, never saying them. No one knows. In fact, there's miles of distance. And then all of a sudden, I just stop and I look right at them and call them by name. Brian? <laughs> Got about 12 more minutes. Just hang on, brother. Like, how did he know? Simon's got these questions and Jesus answers them. Here, here's the irony in the thing. Simon says, if he was a prophet, I think being able to hear your thoughts would qualify you as a prophet. So Jesus answers them, says, I have got, I got something I want to tell you. And then in typical Jesus fashion, he tells a story. He says, two men owed money to a certain money lender. Now, this isn't your normal parable. It is a parable, but this one's different. Because of what's happening in the room around the table, Jesus begins to tell this story. And the story isn't just some fabricated possibility, hypothetical situation. The story is a retelling of what's happening at the table right here, right now. Jesus just changes some circumstances and characters so that maybe, maybe there wouldn't be this defensiveness so that maybe the truth could sink in. And this is why I think this was such an impactful moment. Because as Jesus tells this story, it's Jesus' contrast of two, two men owed a moneylender, but it's not the only time he will tell this story. It'll take different forms. In Luke chapter 10, there's a contrast of two. There's a Samaritan and the Levite. And I wonder if Jesus, as he's telling that story, thinks about this meal. In Luke chapter 15, there's two brothers, an elder brother who always keeps the rules and a younger brother who's had a sinful lifestyle. And I wonder as he tells this story in this contrast, if he thinks about this meal in these individuals. In Luke chapter 16, there's the rich man and the poor beggar Lazarus, this contrast. And I wonder if he thinks about this meal. In Luke chapter 18, he tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple and pray, and he contrasts the two. And I wonder if he thinks about this meal. Because this story comes up again and again and again, just in different forms. Back to the story. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. So they're, they're very much alike. They both owe money. One owed him 500 denarii, a denarius was a day's wage, and the other 50. Okay, so that they're alike, but they're different. One's 10 times worse off in debt than the other, but they're both in debt. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Okay, now they're back to the same. So they were the same, they were different, but now they're the same. And at this point, it doesn't matter if you owe 5, 50, 500, or 5 million. If you can't pay it back, you are bankrupt, you're hopeless, you're helpless. So they're not really that different in their circumstance, in their situation. And I wonder if Jesus tells a story and he just lets it hang so that it, maybe it can kind of marinate and sink in a little bit and they can kind of start seeing where he's going with this. And then he says this about this moneylender. So he canceled the debts of both. He picks up the tab. A little side note, Jesus is the first one that talks about a cancel culture. But look at this. In our world, you do something, something you've done, something from your past, it's found out you're canceled and you're on the outside. In Jesus, you've done something, something you've done, something past, he cancels it so you're on the inside. Come on! Oh man, I love that. And you guys are like, cool. All right. He cancels the debts. Go on back. Go back, please. Okay. 
All right, there you go. He cancels the debt, and he says, the end. The end. That's, that's just, I mean, very, very quick story. The end. Done. And again, I wonder, does he let it just hang in the room? Remember, she's still at his feet. He's telling a story. They're all taking all this in. And then he gives a quiz about the story. Shouldn't be that hard. It wasn't a very big story. It says this. Now, which of them loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And again, I wonder if Jesus just lets it soak in. And then people are going, oh, 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 oh. I wonder if they're starting to get it. And maybe some, maybe like you, come to your own conclusion like, well, shoot, if that's the case, <laughs> let's go on a sinning spree. Every Tuesday is Fat Tuesday. It's Sinapalooza. I mean, if it doesn't matter, let's go for it. Well, that's another sermon in and of itself. Because sin always has built-in consequences, and that's what God's trying to keep you from. He's not trying to keep you from fun. He's trying to keep you from the consequences. That's not even the point that he's making. In fact, I think the point that he's making is this. When it comes to these debts that these two have, more than the amount, it's the awareness. More than the amount of the debt, it's the awareness of the debt and the indebtedness. See, this woman... Her sin is public. It's external. Everyone sees it. It's obvious. Everyone knows it, and she's very aware of it as well. Simon's sin is internal. It's private. Pride, self-righteousness, judgment, envy, hatred. And no one sees it. No one's aware of it. And worst of all, Simon's not aware of it. Here's a little speculation. I gotta do this quick. What if, okay, this is, not, this is biblical, not biblical, okay? This is a what if. Do, do we have time for it? We good? They said, okay. What if, what if, around that table, you have Simon and his Pharisee friends? And what if, one of these Pharisee friends that he's invited is this young, top-of-the-class, up-and-coming, rising star in the Pharisee world. One who does better at righteousness than anyone else. One who's always at the top of the class. One who all the Pharisees are looking up to. It's this young guy, and he's this rising star as a Pharisee. And what if he observes this? And what if he hears this story? And just like with Simon, it solidifies his anger towards Jesus and all that he stands for. So much so that later, within a few years, he makes it his mission in life to not only get rid of the memory of Jesus, but any of the followers of Jesus. And this young upstart Pharisee who's the bright and shining star named Saul meets Jesus. And years later would say, listen, all my righteousness Man, it's all lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Worst in the amount? No. 
worst in the awareness to recognize that even if I have one sin, all of my righteousness will not cancel that out, and I'm as indebted as the vilest offender that ever walked the face of the earth. I'm the worst of the sinners. It's not about the amount. It's the awareness of our indebtedness. So we ask the question again, how much sin must one commit or how badly must one sin to be considered a sinner? John Newton, who dedicated his life to the horrific slave trade when he met Jesus and turned around and recognized, writes those incredible words Amazing grace. How sweet the sound, and look at this self-recognition. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. St. Augustine said this, there is no saint without a past, no sinner without a future. How beautiful is that? All right, let's wrap this up. There's so much more to this story, we don't have time. Verse 44. Then he, Jesus, turned toward the woman. This is the first time he even acknowledges her. They're all seeing it. They're all freaking out. They're all asking questions in their head. He's like saying, could I get another one of those pita breads and some of that hummus and the falafel is really great. Now he looks to the, he turns to the woman and says to Simon. So he looks to her and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? When Jesus turns to her, we think, okay, well, well, he turns to her with compassion. And yes, he does. And we think, well, he turns to her and he looks at her with a divine, beautiful pity. And yes, he does. But I think that's only part of the story. I think he turns to her and he looks at her with love, with delight, with fondness, and sees beauty. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? No, no, no. Do you see this woman? Because later Jesus would say, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you blind guides. Do you see? Simon doesn't even see himself. He doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't see this woman. So let's bring this home. If any of us ever thinks that we're good enough, that our righteousness, that our religiousness, that our church attendance, that our Bible reading, that our saying yes to this, no to this, is good enough, we are blind and self-deceived, just like Simon was. If any of us thinks we've sinned too bad, our past is too dark, we could never ever be free from that, we are blind and self-deceived. If any of us ever thinks that somehow in our own doings that we have the ability to judge others, then we are blind and self-deceived. Now Henry Nouwen, in his book, uh, Return of the Prodigal Son, which wish I had time to spend more uh, talking about that. He talks about this, this, this story, the prodigal son, Luke 15, which is a picture of what happens at this meal. And he talks about this Rembrandt painting that he spends an entire day just meditating upon and looking at. And then he talks about his own spiritual journey of how he saw himself as the younger son who was lost and rebellious. 
And then over time, as he became you know, this priest, and, and that he saw himself as the elder brother who was dutiful and doing the right thing, but still far from the father. And then later, a friend said, but don't you understand that as the younger brother or the older brother, you're called to the role of the father. And he writes in that book these words, if God forgives the sinners, then certainly those who have faith in God should do the same. If God welcomes sinners home, then certainly those who trust in God should do likewise. If God is compassionate, then certainly those who love God should be compassionate as well. And then he goes on further and says, becoming like the Heavenly Father is not just one important aspect of Jesus' teaching. It is the very heart of his message that we who've been invited to the table of Jesus, who've been extended grace and forgiveness, we ought to approach that table as forgiven sinners forgiving sinners. That we ought to be the ones who recognize what Jesus has done for us and extend that and put that forward to anyone and everyone. At the end of this story, in in verse 50, it says this, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So, here's what I want to challenge you with this week. Would you take some time this week, think through this story again, read through this story again, and think through the three main characters of this story. Think and ask, is there any Simon in me? Is there some judgment? Is there some attitude? Is there some hidden sin? Pray that the Lord would reveal it. Is there pride here? Is there self-righteousness here? Is there judgment here? And repent of that. You think you can do it on your own? Repent of that. And then put yourself in the role of the woman who had a sinful past. Recognize what Christ has done for us, the forgiveness and the grace and the new life, and worship him with unfiltered, extravagant worship like she did. And then recognize that we're called to be like Jesus, reclined at the table, approachable, not authoritative, not judgmental, not defensive, extending the grace. What an incredible meal. It would never be forgotten. And 2,000 years later, not only are we talking about the meal, but Jesus calls us to live that meal.